beaming from Pacific Junction Hotel to Earth. Yo, uh, welcome to my summer layer. I'm your host, Sammy Yunan. I'm super excited. I have a really cool science fiction writer joining me today. But I'm going to have you introduce yourself because you got a really cool line on your bio. It says, if today is more than six months since you've like read this, you can assume that this is no longer valid. So <laughs> rather than me kind of just copying or just kind of introducing, why don't you introduce yourself and some of the work that you do? Because it's pretty cool. Sure. Yeah, I'm Cory Doctorow and uh, I'm a science fiction writer. But as you say, I do some other things. I'm one of the owners of a website called Boing Boing. That's a, now a 20 year old blog about technology and policy and culture and uh, every day I write between 5 and 15 articles about what's going on in the world and I write science fiction novels and I'm an activist with a nonprofit called the Electronic Frontier Foundation. And I'm a visiting professor of computer science at the Open University in, in the UK and uh, visiting professor of practice of library science at the University of North Carolina and a research affiliate at uh, the MIT Media Lab. And I live in Los Angeles, but I'm from Toronto. Yeah, so welcome back. Thank you. Does it feel like Toronto's changed a lot since you... Yeah. I know you come here and every now and then, but like... It's very disorienting to be an expatriate of a city that you grew up in until your 20s, because mm -hmm. if you live in one place until your 20s, you really know it very well. And mm -hmm. so the changes always feel very eerie. And, you know, if you're an expatriate and you come back to see your family a couple of times a year, it's just time lapse. You know, the, uh, it's an empty lot, then mm -hmm. it's a half-built building, then it's a finished building, then there's an empty lot next to it, <laughs> then, it, you know, given yeah. Toronto's light-speed yeah. construction. Yeah, it, I mean, the whole world has gone through quite a neoliberal transformation mm -hmm. over the last 25 years. Well, really over the last 40, but it really got going over the last 20 that I've been gone. And Toronto's been no stranger to that. You know, I, I left during the Harper years... Uh, or the, uh, the not the Harper years, who was Harper Jr., who was premier? Oh, Mike Harris. I Mike left during the Mike Harris yes. years. Uh, and, um, you know, to watch the explosion of homelessness and visible grinding poverty, you know, it's a thing that's happening everywhere. L.A. has more homeless people than any other city in the U.S., but... Yeah, uh, sanctuary towns and that yeah, kind of, yeah. yeah. Well, well, not the sanctuary stuff, but the, but yeah. the, um, the shanty towns. Yeah. Uh, they're tent cities on the sides of the highway. And to see that here is really remarkable. And also to see the systematic starvation of the public transit system and the concomitant growth of a, of a unnavigable roads, right? Traffic system has been really remarkable too. I think Toronto has worse traffic than LA now. It does, yeah. I was in LA about a year ago and I was like surprised at how much more um, effortless it was to kind of get around and yeah. drive. Obviously you have to drive everywhere in LA. Right. Right. And I was just surprised at how much easier it was to get to places than yeah. it was here. I was like, because <laughs> that's, that's the LA meme or the reputation, right? Right. I mean, and certainly, you know, on bad days, the LA highway system is, you know, like a Hieronymus Bosch painting. But, mm -hmm. but, <laughs> You know, the Toronto, the, the starvation of the Toronto transit system has been a, a great shame. And, you know, when you think back on what the city was like when uh, the transit system was low cost and extensive and uh, was had the capacity to carry everyone who wanted to be on it and compare it to, you know, seeing five streetcars go by in a row with no room in a seat. It is really something, mm -hmm. you know. So we're going to, I don't have a proper segue for that. I was just kind of curious sure. what you're, because it's like, you know, like I said, you, because you said you get to come back. So it's like, you know, when somebody's kind of lost a lot of weight or whatever, like yeah. you notice it right away. Sure. <laughs> right. So when we're living in the city, we kind of like, it's all in our face. So yeah. It's and I think Toronto, I mean, I think that the, the changes to Toronto are not about Toronto. They're about the global phenomena coming home to roost here. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, this is, this is just Toronto under conditions of neoliberalism. I wanted to pick up on that because this is part of uh, your new book, uh, Radicalized. 
and um, there's a opening. The, the opening sentence and the last sentence are the same, but with a small little change. Oh gosh, I never even noticed that. Oh, okay. You make me feel very clever, though. Okay. Uh, well, then I'll just make up something clever then to my okay. question, because the the dedication says uh, it closes. Uh, this isn't the kind of fight we win. It's the kind of fight uh, we fight. Sure. And then the last one in the acknowledgments, the very last line of the whole book, huh. you change it. You say. This isn't the kind of fight you win. It's the kind of fight you fight. Huh. We went from we to you. I have no idea why I did that. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, but I mean, that is a sentiment I have. You know, I think that... I thought it was just kind of like the, the reader got radicalized by the end of it. We Maybe. went from a we as a group to now like you go out there and you do Maybe. and like achieve freedom uh, and internet success. Yeah. And I mean, you know, I think that... that um, the novelistic way of thinking about political struggle is that it has a beginning, a middle, and an end. Mm -hmm. uh, but Hopefully a happy ending. Uh, I, uh, maybe a happy ending, but that it has an ending. And, you know, I think that, that that is a fallacy that we go through in our politics. You know, I lived in London for a long time, and I left just ahead of Brexit, and I've been watching the Brexit debate roll out since. And, you know, there's this call for a second referendum, and there may very well be a second referendum. And if there is, all the polling suggests that maybe it will flip, but it'll flip by a couple of points because it's only won by a couple of points. And um, the idea that if you take a vote that you view as illegitimate because it was carried by a 52% majority and reverse it with a 52% majority that goes the other way, mm -hmm. that the people who voted in the first 52% majority will not feel the same degree of grievance, panic, and anger, mm -hmm. it's it's wrong, right? Yeah. This is the the... There is no easy end in sight. I mean, we were before we went on mic, we were talking a little about Egyptian politics, right? I mean, you know, it's pretty clear that Egyptian politics are not at their end state. No. You know, and the only way that Egyptian politics were ever static was through a kind of rigid system of, of totalitarian oppression mm -hmm. uh, that was so bad that it sparked a revolution, right? I, you know, the... the you know, this idea that the arc of history is long, but it bends towards justice, it's its a wonderful vision, but it has this idea that justice is a place you get to rather than a thing you fight for. It's like a trailer for like an Avengers movie coming out like a year from now. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah and the Marvel Universe is another one of those unending things, I suppose. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But then, but the fight is still worth it though, right? And that's what your sentiment is though. Like it's still like, even though you, uh, the trailer is like a long way away and it's like, it's just Comic-Con or San Diego or whatever. And the movie won't be out for another year. It's still worth the fight, right? Yeah. I mean, I think that, that, um, to get back to this theme of 40 years of neoliberalism, one of the things that characterizes, uh, this kind of market-based way of looking at the world is a short-termism and that, when you think about our most noble accomplishments, they're all intergenerational projects. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the, the idea that you make a change now so that your children or grandchildren might benefit from it is a very powerful one. And it's a, it's a powerful organizing force to think about, about uh, an intergenerational improvement. And I wrote a novella a couple of years ago called The Man Who Sold the Moon. That's about someone whose dying wish is to put 3D printers on the moon that sit there on their own as for as long as it takes using solar centers to turn lunar regolith moon dust into interlocking tiles that can be clicked together to make lunar shelters and the idea is that the people on earth for as long as it takes civilizations might come and go can look up at the moon and see that their ancestors for 
things that would never benefit them personally left a gift on the surface of the moon for the descendants who might someday decide to go there. Mm -hmm. And, and, you know, we have lots of examples of this stuff. And, you know, the Long Now Foundation, these other institutions exist to try and think through these, these long-term consequences. It's, it's, you know, part of uh, an indigenous idea of stewardship. You know, there's this idea of seven generations of foresight when you, when you plan for things. And, uh, it's certainly an issue that's become urgent in this moment of climate change to, to think in these longer time scales instead of quarterly ones. We saw that with some of the debt forgiveness for some of Africa as well, mm -hmm. where they kind of just wiped the slate a little bit clean and kind of allowed them to start all over rather than having to keep having generation after generation paying all this interest and all this debt. Yeah, I mean, and the corollary of that is the lack of debt forgiveness in Haiti, where the first nation of freed African enslaved people had to buy their freedom from France and they were paying interest on it until the 1980s. Mm -hmm. And we say, well, why is Haiti so poor? And the answer is because they had to send all their money to France to buy their own skins back from the people who'd stolen them. And so this idea of freedom and choice, some of the themes you're just talking about now, this isn't the first uh, novella of radicalized, unauthorized bread. Mm -hmm. And this kind of feeds into this because this is really interesting. Um, so this is, uh, as its description is, it's a tale of immigration, toxic economic stratification and a young woman's perilous illegal quest to fix a broken toaster yeah uh, it's very black mirror-ish like yeah. i know you've written a black mirror story like for the book yeah yeah but so there's a black mirror element to it yeah so the the i have this idea that there's this like bad technology adoption curve that when we have a terrible technology idea the first people we tried on are refugees and then regular immigrants and then prisoners and then parole prisoners and then mental patients and then kids mm -hmm. and then uh, blue collar workers and gig economy workers and then white collar workers. And so, you know, science fiction writers, I don't think we predict the future, but I think that if you want to have a general sense of what your technological future will look like, look at what we're imposing on refugees and, and then add 15 years and yes. you'll be using a version that's a product. And we are increasingly living in a world in which our technologies are designed to control us so that we have to use them in ways that benefit the shareholders, the companies that made them instead of ourselves. So, you know, the original example of that would be something like an inkjet printer where, you know, there, there, there's no good reason why you shouldn't be allowed to buy third-party ink and plug it into your printer. But the printer manufacturers have been locked in this arms race with their users for years. And they've increasingly been able to deploy legal means to prevent both their users and their competitors from making interoperable cartridges. But those same legal tools that the printer manufacturers weaponized are available to other kinds of manufacturers now too. So John Deere and, and GM famously now lock third-party mechanics out of their cars so that, so that you can't fix your own tractor and you can't take your car to a mechanic of your choosing. Um, Apple has started doing this where even if you, if you go to a third-party iPhone repair person and they take a donor screen from a broken iPhone 10 and put it in your iPhone, even though it's an original Apple part, it won't work until Apple gives them an authorization code to turn wow. it on. And, you know, the, the Apple at the same time as it was deploying this was warning its shareholders that it expected revenue declines because people were fixing their phones instead of replacing them. And it's not hard to see why they would want these kinds of measures. But, you know, it gets worse and worse. So now Johnson & Johnson have got regulatory approval for an artificial pancreas. That's um, it's a uh, uh, insulin pump and a glucose monitor. And insulin, it's, it's obviously it's in the public domain. When Banting and Best in discovered it, they decided that it would be immoral to patent it because it was so necessary to prolonging people's lives. And so Johnson & Johnson can't charge you 
for the insulin. So instead, they have it so it only accepts a proprietary cartridge that you can't refill. Mm -hmm. uh, and if you try to, well, then you have to bypass a copyright lock, and you face criminal and civil liability, both under the U.S. Digital Millennium Copyright Act and under the Canadian version of it that uh, James Moore and Tony Clement shepherded in. And I, I had a fight with James Moore about this on Twitter, where he said, well, why should you expect to be able to install third-party software on your iPad? If you didn't like that deal, why did you buy an iPad? And like, why is that any of your business? Yeah. The, the operative word, surely, in that sentence is not iPad. It's mine, mm -hmm. right? It, you know, if a manufacturer sells you a car that won't allow you to plug a, a charger into the cigarette lighter or a dishwasher that won't wash un unauthorized dishes, that's not that's not your problem. That's their problem, yeah. right? If you want, if you figure out how to defeat it. So Salima and um, the main character, the, the main the character, and Nadifa, her friend. They're refugees who've, who scored awesome refugee housing in Boston in a building that was being built as luxury housing. And to get planning permission to add some extra stories, they agreed to make a couple of the floors below market subsidized rent. But the landlords have done so in the most spiteful way imaginable. So not only do the elevators not stop for you if there's someone from one of the rich floors in them, but also all of the appliances in the building uh, suck money out of your wallet. They'll only take authorized bread in the toaster, they'll only take authorized groceries in the fridge, and they'll only take authorized dishes in your dishwasher, and so on. And if that's not bad enough, the hedge funds that thought this was a good idea are such kind of gruesome financial engineers that they crash the, the companies that do this, and everything stops working. Mm -hmm. But that turns out to be a blessing in disguise because these people in refugee housing use this as the impetus to figure out how to jailbreak their appliances. And they have this kind of new golden era where the appliances are responsive to them and not to these distant financial institutions. But then the companies come back out of bankruptcy and the telemetry that they use to monitor performance of these devices in the field threatens to turn them in to the authorities. And if you're a refugee and you commit a felony, you face deportation yeah. and back to the country where you have reason to feel for your life. So it becomes a literal matter of life and death. Jailbreak, too. I mean, it's two words that are not positive anyways. Yeah, sure. Right. Right. I mean, you know, and I think that it was a you, you, you never hear the, the companies that use these locks talk about jailbreaking. They talk about illegal modification or they you know, the, 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 yeah, a dangerous illegal modification mm -hmm. or unauthorized modification, circumvention. Uh, I mean, honestly, I think jailbreak is the right term because they put your damn device in prison. Mm -hmm. So does writing science fiction allow you to kind of get out some of your fears? Like you touched on a number of issues. Uh, refugees is a big one nowadays. Does mm -hmm. writing science fiction allow you to kind of get out some of your fears in like kind of um, a more controlled universe so that way you can be more optimistic in real life? Well, I think that it... it lets me create things that are on the one hand therapeutic for me. I mean, I wrote these novellas as a way of kind of coping with my Trump era anxiety. I never intended to write this book. I was working on the third little brother book, which I'm editing right now. It's finished. And I wrote these while Yay. I was working on that. And um, on the other hand, I feel like fiction is a powerful intervention in political debates. It's a way to take what is otherwise a very abstract argument and, and realize the, the kind of underlying emotional reality of it and put some, put some meat and gristle and blood on the bone mm -hmm. that's otherwise very dry. You talked about like the, your Trump uh, era anxiety. And I know like sometimes too, you see on like Twitter and social media, there's like a pervasive sense of doom and things are getting worse and mm -hmm. uh, we're just hurtling towards hell in a handbasket kind of mentality. Do you have any metrics that you use to know that things are getting better? Or do you, like how do you manufacture hope then? Yeah, so 
Uh, as I think I mentioned, I don't like the idea that science fiction writers predict the future. I, I think the idea that, that there can be an oracle that tells you what's coming is, is, is foundationally a council of despair, because if the future is coming, then what we do doesn't matter. Right? I think the future changes based on what we do. And so rather than being an optimist or a pessimist, which are both by way of saying, you know, I think I know what the future will be like, I try to be hopeful. And hope is the idea that if you act, you might find a position from which you can act again, that you can ascend a gradient towards a better world, that you don't have to know a, a path to traverse all of the terrain. All you need to know is one step that you can take that takes you further up the slope. And hope is not, is not sufficient, but it is necessary for, prog for progression. You know, if your ship sinks in the sea, you tread water, not because you have a realistic expectation of being rescued, but the people who never treaded water were never rescued. 100% of the people who were <laughs> rescued treaded water. So um, for me, hope is the idea that I can find one thing I can do that might make one difference. And uh, the framework I use for this, it was developed by a lawyer named Lawrence Lessig, a cyber lawyer, is one of the founders of Creative Commons. And, and he says that our world is regulated by these four forces, by code, which is what's technologically possible, by law, what's legally permissible, by norms, what's socially acceptable, and by markets, what's profitable. And sometimes when you can't think of a thing to do, say, normatively, when you run into conversations you can have with your friends to try and change their behavior and get them to stop using Facebook, say, you can make a technological intervention. You can make a tool that scrapes Facebook so that you can follow your friends without using it. Or you can make a legal intervention. You can go talk, to, sign a petition or talk to your MP or join a class action suit. Or, or you can make a market intervention and you can give some money to a company that's doing something better than Facebook. Or you can start that company. And, you know, if you keep those four cardinal directions in mind and whenever you find yourself at an impasse, ask yourself, well, what am I doing here? Is this normative? Is there a legal change I can I can go for? Is there a, 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 a technological change that I can try to inter introduce? Not because technology will save us, but because technology and law and code and norms all working together, reinforcing each other will save us. And speaking of saving us, the second story in Radicalize is Model Minority, mm -hmm. which involves a superhero who is very similar to Superman. Uh -huh. And uh, he's actually dating a woman named Lois. And he's got a friend named Bruce who's a billionaire, and it's set in New York City. So there's a couple of hints yeah. of what's happening. How would you describe this one? This is a really this is my favorite story. I, t I told you this on Twitter. This is my yeah. favorite story. How do you describe this one? Well, you know, I wrote it after reading Matt Taibbi's amazing book about the murder of Eric Garner by the New York Police Department. And the he's an amazing writer, Rolling oh Stone God. writer. Yeah, yeah, he's fabulous. And the the cops who killed Garner, they were um, they were uh, lawless goon squad death squad who had been beating and jailing with impunity on the streets of New York for years. They had t-shirts made that had a quote from Hemingway about how glorious it was to hunt humans. Uh, and they wore these around while racking up millions of dollars in, in settlements for human rights violations they were committing and no one stopped them. And as I'm reading this, I, I was having this very childish, uh, very <laughs> uh, atavistic reaction. You know, what, like, what if Superman could just step in and stop that? And that got swirled up with a lot of other thoughts that I'd had over the years. You know, one of them was about, um, uh, yeah, I listened to this podcast out of Montreal called Trafe. That's a radical Jewish podcast uh, that's, you know, in favor of a just two-state solution in Palestine and so on. And it talks about how uh, Jews like me were once racialized but became white and that 
we threw our lot in with white supremacy, particularly in what comes to Islamophobia, and that a lot of Jews who think they are white woke up one day a couple of years ago and realized that there were a bunch of dudes in Confederate uniforms chanting, Jews will not replace us, and that maybe we picked the wrong side, uh, in that maybe the last ones in the, the whiteness boat are the first ones who get kicked out. Mm-hmm. And um, Superman is a creation of anxious Jews, right? It's this. It's the creation of a Torontonian, mm-hmm. uh, Joe Schuster, and 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 Siegel, his partner, who were watching Nazism unfold across the ocean, and who who literally wrote a story about an immortal Gentile who could who could beat up Nazis. Mm, yeah, <laughs> and you know, I wanted to write about how quickly and wha- displaced from home too. Super right. displaced from home. Yeah, and I wanted to write about how quickly your whiteness could disappear and your humanity can disappear when you cease to be on the side of white supremacy. Mm -hmm. And this is the thing that Superman learns very quickly. He also learns that his billionaire pal, Bruce Wayne, is the military contractor who's been selling the predictive policing tools to New York that has sent this goon squad to the African-American neighborhoods of Staten Island to to beat up black people. Mm -hmm. And it's a story about the limits of allyship and uh, the uh, need for it, and um, the limits of pursuing individual solutions to what is ultimately a collective social problem. Yeah, I think it was Lois. She asked, uh, the Superman character is called American Eagle in this, and she asked him, I guess the question is, does the American Eagle want to feel good about himself, or does he want to make a difference? Mm-hmm. Right. And that's I think sometimes the you'll see that sometimes on social media where people will hashtag something and then they feel like they've done a good job now and then they can go take a nap. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so I have a complicated view of things like clicktivism. Mm-hmm. You know, when I started off in the activist world, as in the protest world, you know, the way to start as a as an activist was to show up at a demonstration and you physically know, do something. Yeah. And in those days, it was relatively safe to demonstrate um you know we had we had come through the war measures act in the 1970s in the early 1980s the late 1970s the police weren't beating us up they weren't arresting us we 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 had a kind of we could get a permit and we could march and you know there were these big annual marches hiroshima day and and women's day and so on against nuclear proliferation for gender equity um but uh there was still a high hurdle right and today it's a much higher hurdle today in the era of you know, the bedwetting terror of authority Mm -hmm. for any display of public protest, you know, after the G20 in Toronto and so on, you know, any manifestation of public discontent with the establishment is liable to unbelievable retribution, violent retribution by the state. And so to say to people, here's what your onboarding looks like if you want to figure out if you want to do something about society, you have to risk being kettled, beaten, arrested, banned from traveling for the rest of your life because you have an arrest record, maybe being kicked out of your job. And and if you're not ready to do that as your first step, then we're not interested in having you. I think you get a lot fewer people in the pipeline. Yeah. Right? The thing about, about any act, movement is that you need a big pipeline because most people will fall out of it. And you can try and keep people in the pipeline. You can try and help people stay in it. But one of the best ways to expand the number of activists on the front line is to make the pipeline bigger. Uh, just to play the numbers game. And I think collectivism is a first step that you can take that's much easier. And, a, and you know, if collectivism has a problem, it's that we who are activists need to figure out how we can guide people up a gradient from 
adding a hashtag or clicking a petition to doing the next thing and the next and the next. And, and to creating a smooth gradient of ways that you can increase your engagement with activist causes so that you can be really sure that you're on the right side and that you re- it really matters to you before you put your body in harm's way. Just because you downloaded Tinder doesn't mean you're going to get married anytime soon. Yeah, but, you know, uh, back to, like, necessary but insufficient preconditions. Uh, I don't know. I've been married for, for 10 years, but I'm, <laughs> I'm given to understand that you have very little chance of, of romance these days unless you start with one of the apps. Mm-hmm. The the interesting thing too with that story is uh, Denny O'Neill was just here, famous comic book writer from back in the days, 60s, 70s, wrote a lot of Batman. He also wrote uh, Green Lantern, Green Arrow in the early 70s, and uh, he was here for Comic Con, Toronto Comic Con, and he was really upset because there was a storyline in uh, Green Lantern, Green Arrow where uh, Speedy uh, Green Arrow's sidekick uh, becomes a junkie, and they had to wrap up the uh, the drug addiction storyline over two issues. Hmm. What what part of that upset him? That he was a junkie or that they didn't play it out? They didn't play enough? it out. And what ended up uh, happening was the editor, Neil Adams, basically, and he was telling this in the uh, panel about his work, uh, just decided to kind of just like punch Speedy and just kind of had a fight. And then they, once the fight was over, they were like, okay, I'm back to normal. And then like, oh, uh, really? yeah, so they kind of like punched addiction in the so face. So a little facile. Yeah, and so he was kind of upset, and I. That's also, I think, too, where American Eagle or Superman too. Sometimes, I even some of us sometimes we just want to punch something. Yeah. Right, Trump or something like that. But it's not always like you said for collectivism and other act- activity. It's not always an effective thing to just want to punch something. Right. But that's our sometimes well, our first instinct. Back to fights you fight instead of fights you win. Like in 1982, the U.S. Federal Trade uh, Commission had its very last real effective antitrust enforcement. They broke up AT and T into half a dozen baby right, bells, yeah. right? And it's not like the baby bells, you know, their executives went off and like joined an ashram, right? Like they they like hung around inside the baby bells like Voldemort on the back of some poor asshole's head mm-hmm. until now AT&T has remerged and is bigger than it was when they broke it up in 82 mm-hmm. because we stopped the enforcement, right? These are, these are, um, these are the, the forces of reaction, greed, monopoly, and control don't go away just because you score a victory. And so there is, there is a need to always be committed to principle and it's easy to forget right it's easy to forget the victories you've won and to think that they're eternal that that though that to become complacent and it's when you become complacent that your hard-won victories are reversed yeah so that again then you're doing a really good job you're making the segues a lot easier the victories and the hard-won victories you're talking about this leads into radicalized yeah and uh this again i'm, I'm guessing because it's a healthcare story does this have any influence with you being a Canadian living in, a, in America now and then seeing the difference? Because you get the uh, it's like we're here in Toronto and we get to see all the American stuff with Trump and everything. It's that outsider insider perspective. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we have, uh, you know, gold plated uh, um, health insurance, the, the best you can get in the U.S. My wife works for a big Fortune 100 company and, and we bought the most the top tier of insurance. And it's terrible. Mm-hmm. I mean, y- y- you know. It's funny, the, there's, David Graeber wrote this book called The Utopia of Rules about how during the, the Soviet era, we were told that markets were better because uh, in, the, in, in Soviet countries, you were stuck standing in lines, all the stores sold the same stuff, and you never stopped doing paperwork. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, having just come from an American airport, you never get out of line. <laughs> uh, every high street in every city in the West has the same 10 stores selling the same goods. And 
if you want to talk about paperwork and bureaucracy, I mean, on the one hand, like just look at the life of people on welfare and how much paperwork we've we've given them and how bureaucratized that's become. But you know, the American healthcare system. You know, here's a here's a a, a common example. I, w I had to go to the ER uh, for something that turned out to be nothing, but I, out of an abundance of caution. So I walked into my local St. Joe's Providence Catholic Hospital, part of a big chain, really well respected and well thought of. And so I go up to the desk, and they hand me some paperwork, and I'm, I'm filling it out, and then they give me a signature strip, an electronic signature strip, and they say, sign here. And I say, well, what am I signing? And they say, well, that's the privacy policy. I'm like, where is the privacy policy that I'm signing? And they're like, ugh. So they hit print, and they <laughs> take a single sheet off the paper and has one sentence on it with a signature blank underneath, and it says, I've read the privacy policy. And I said, this is also not the privacy policy. <laughs> they said, oh, fine, we'll put it aside for now. And then, you know, more more typing, more making copies of my identification, which will certainly leak someday. Mm -hmm. And then they hand me the signature strip again. And I said, well, what's this? And they said, well, that's the consent policy. And I said, great, <laughs> well, I'd like to see that too. And they printed out, this time they printed it out. I'm reading through it and reading through it. And, and there's one clause that says, they can put me in four-point restraint and sedate me if in their sole judgment they think that's necessary. Wow. The next clause says that they can take, uh, they can perform surgery on me whether whether or not I'm conscious if in their sole judgment they think, uh, and to, to give my approval, what, if in their sole judgment they think that's necessary. Then the next one says that they can make video and still recordings of any procedures and use them for any purpose. So I'm like, does this say that you can knock me out, strip me naked, cut me open, make a video of it, and put it on the internet? And they said, well, we'll we'd never do that. <laughs> and I said, great. Well, then you won't mind if I just take this pen and cross that stuff out before I sign it. This is not uncommon mm -hmm. in the American healthcare system. You know, my daughter went back to that same ER a couple of weeks ago. She broke her collarbone. Our gold-plated insurance, we paid $2,400 for her x-ray, including $2.5 for her to get a Tylenol. Wow. Right? The, the American healthcare system is alarming, and Radicalized is a story in which entitled white dudes stop killing their ex-wives and brown people and start murdering healthcare executives who have cost them their dearest loved ones. And when you think about it, when I think about it, I find it remarkable that these heavily armed entitled white dudes who are so find it so easy to kill brown people and their ex-wives have never, to my knowledge, targeted healthcare executives whose bureaucratic decisions murdered their children and mm -hmm. loved ones. It's actually like, I can't understand why they haven't. I mean, I'm glad they haven't. I don't want anyone to kill anyone else. But I, I, I literally can't understand why that's not happening. And when you start thinking of, about that and picking at it, you, you realize that like America would have to make a choice, right? Like how long could you call middle-class respectable white dudes lone wolves instead of terrorists if the people they were killing were white millionaires? And that becomes like a, you know, like that kind of sets up an interesting dynamic. So this is a story about a guy who starts off thinking that his loved one is about to be murdered by a for-profit bureaucracy, but through no, no thanks to the bureaucracy, she has a spontaneous remission. And he stays on this message board that he's found for, that's nominally for people who are struggling with loved ones who have cancer, but who are really struggling with loved ones who are being murdered by bureaucracies. And he realizes that he's the only one who stayed who's not broken, that all the people who could figure it out and who could get over it, they left, and that he's in this toxic milieu, and he's the only thing that's, that is acting as a break on it. And so he sticks around, and this was based on a true story. The person who coined the term incel was a queer Canadian woman who created a message board for people like her 
who were finding it very hard to find physical romantic love. She coined the term incel, and she had this message board, and she realized that all the elder states people of her message board were the people who could never figure it out. And that even though she had since gone on to find a lover and to find romance, that she was sticking around out of this sense of duty, and then she left. And then it went very toxic, and you had someone drive a van up Young Street and kill 10 people. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, this was the other thing I wanted to explore. And then finally I wanted to explore the idea that um, rights are never given, they're only ever taken. And that when you pick at any story about rights being taken, there are always actions that are monstrous. And people who are given a pass for their monstrousness because it turned out okay, because the ends justified the means, whether that's the American Revolution or um, other uh, moments in our history, you know, uh, where we, we turn around and we celebrate these people who in the moment were condemned for monstrous acts that are monstrous by empiric by any empirical measure. Guy Fox, for example, we Guy do Fox. the the, yeah. the Guy Fox mass now is huge. Yeah. Right? And yeah. V for Fendetta, the movie and the comic and these kind of yeah. things. Does, does this also feed into the the uh, theme and the idea that you touched upon earlier, which is retain your humanity? Because it's like the message boards too, and we're seeing this too, where like things like Reddit and other sites and stuff are kind of like infecting or polluting people's minds and their thinking. And it becomes a lot more harder to uh, retain your humanity because mm. once you go online, there's like thing where like a number of employees who worked at Reddit, for example, have suffered from PTSD. Sure. Uh, from just being because the message boards. Yeah. Just because yeah. of all the child pornography and just like they got to see the ugliness of humanity sure. quickly. Whereas like, yes, Reddit has helped obviously a number of charities and there's the Christmas gifting. And oh, and, and it's full of message boards that are very supportive, too. Mm -hmm. you know, uh, so. Is it difficult to retain your humanity, I guess, when you go online? So Boston University, uh, there was a researcher there who did a study maybe 10 or 12 years ago that were um, case studies of uh, suicide bombers in the occupied territories. And he was trying to investigate, are these people who are um, so ideological that they become suicide bombers, or is it the other way around? And what he found is that what this is is people who've been traumatized uh, by things that are legitimately traumatic and they are suicidal because of their trauma. And then ideologues say, well, if you're going to kill yourself, don't let it go to waste. Mm -hmm. And so it's the other direction. And so much of when we talk about radicalization, what we say is the kind of social version of that shitty apology that goes, I'm sorry you're angry at me, can you please stop, right? Uh, and it's, I'm sorry that you're traumatized by the way the world works, can you be less traumatized? Not can we fix the way the world works? Mm -hmm. And I think that um, when we talk about Reddit, you mentioned images of the sexual abuse of children and leaving that aside, because I think that's a separate issue. When you talk about people who are so alienated that these outrageous, racist and uh, xenophobic and, and misogynist and homophobic explanations sound good to them, I think that you know, while while we don't necessarily need to have um, empathy for those people or or sympathy, rather, we don't have to we don't have to agree with them. We can have empathy. We can understand where it's happening, where it's coming from, because in the absence of that, then we just end up with this idea that um, people are bad because they're evil, mm -hmm. right? I remember during the Hackney riots when I lived in East London, 
David Cameron, who was then the prime minister, before he destroyed the country by having the Brexit referendum, he, he said, you know, don't look to sociology for an explanation for these people who are riding in our streets. This is criminality, plain and simple. Which left me asking, like, what is criminality if it has no causes? Is criminality like pollen? And if it lands on you, then you just become a criminal? Like, where does, where, <laughs> how do you suppose this phenomenon arose? And if you say that it's a spontaneous phenomenon, what is the basis for you thinking that it will end? If it's almost no like a virus or something. From. Yeah. Like if I sneeze on you, then all of a sudden you then go you out and start robbing criminal. banks. Yeah. And there, there is this idea of social contagion, but social contagion is a thing that people who are resilient are more resistant to. And our resilience and our cohesion has been steadily eroded by generations of uh, this theory of, of uh, individual primacy, that all problems have an individual cause and therefore an individual solution. You know, like you can recycle all you want. You're not going to fix climate change. Right. <laughs> uh, and and that, you know, um, racism and inequality are matters of individual choice and so on. These are social phenomenon. These are collective action problems. And we see this with fear, too. Fear is a choice as well. Sure. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's right. And so I wanted to dig into those ideas, too, that the, how the story that this is your problem and not our problem means that you end up being doubly traumatized first by the problem and then by your sense of inadequacy because you can't fix it because it's your problem mm -hmm. so i'll get you out on this there's always been like a kind of a party pooper aspect to science fiction right mm -hmm. like we kind of touched upon this at the beginning we're like the unintended consequences of technology or this is the future that we're building which could be kind of grim dystopian stuff mm -hmm. um is there a point where people would become immune maybe to these cautionary tales and to the lessons of these kind of cautionary tales? Like the, the subtext of, or the subtitle of, the, of your book is Four Tales of Our Present Moment. Sure. Right? And it does highlight things that we should be have a little more situational awareness of, a little bit more like, I guess the analogy is just that like when you're at a, like a football game or something and you see the wave is coming, right? But it's not in your stands yet. So it's like you can't do it. Or mm. some people are kind of looking at their phone or getting a hot dog or whatever, so they miss it. So is it, like, is it possible that science fiction would eventually kind of fall on deaf ears and wouldn't galvanize people in the same way? Well, I mean, there is the kind of, there are the people who read dystopian science fiction as a manual instead of a warning. Mm. Um, and, you know, the, the fourth story in this book, Mask of the Red Death, it's about, it's about a rich prepper who has uh, read a bunch of apocalyptic fiction and, and thought that sounds great, right? The, all, the, all the useless people kill each other in an orgy of violence and then I emerge as a kind of Frank Frazetta painting warlord uh, <laughs> with a harem and a bunch of you know, gemstone quality precious stones and, and a thumb drives full of Bitcoin and uh, I reboot civilization with me on top, right? Uh, and there are, there are people for whom that's, that's the, the vision. But I do think that having these vivid emotional fly-throughs of these otherwise dry and abstract ideas, it becomes a really powerful vocabulary for talking about this stuff, you know? Um, and, and I think that you learn a lot about the present moment by what science fiction is popular. I don't think that it's because science fiction writers are predicting the future, but because, you know, across the spectrum of futures that science fiction writers are imagining, if you look at the ones that we pay attention to, those ones are likely to be things that reflect our anxieties and our aspirations about the world. So, you know, we just had the bicentennial of Shakespeare, right? And Mary Shelley comes in and out of vogue. 
And whenever she comes into vogue, you know, we're having anxiety about technology mastering us instead of the other way around. Mm -hmm. it's, it's a diagnostic tool, right? If I, if I um, pluck this string, do you vibrate in sympathy with it? And if so, maybe you are thinking about the thing that I, that I made this string out of. Yeah, what have we unleashed? Yeah. So the the book is radicalized. It's out now. It so, is. Yeah. Um, thank you. I really like the uh, the superhero one. That was my favorite one. I'm so. so glad to hear that. Yeah. I just did an event. You know, the launch event for this in Los Angeles was with Lexi Alexander, who's a German Palestinian activist who she directed on Supergirl. Yeah, she worked on. She directed Punisher, but she worked yeah. on Supergirl. Mm -hmm. So we had quite a good rollicking Superman discussion. Yeah. Yeah, it was very good. Are you reading any cool comics these days, or anything you'd recommend? Comics I'm reading. Uh, I did just read Maneaters and absolutely mm -hmm. adored it. It was superb. And then, in terms of like funny books, Woman World, from, which is by a woman from uh, from Ontario whose name I forget. Uh, gosh, I've just blanked it. It's a it's a she's she's um, Indian Canadian, so it's mm -hmm. an Indian name. Uh, but it's. Uh, she lives in LA, she lives near me, and I was on a panel with her this summer, and I didn't realize, so they put me on the panel with her at Comic-Con before I'd read the book, and I just saw the name and saw that she was like a storyboard artist at, uh, at um, Nickelodeon with a webcomic, and I was mm -hmm. like, well, she sounds perfectly nice, I'm sure we'll get mm -hmm. on fine. And then I got there, and this was the book I'd been talking about at, by that point for two months, <laughs> and just telling everyone, and I show up at the panel, and she's holding the book, and I'm like, and I look at the book, and I look at her name tag, and I'm like, holy shit that was the <laughs> funniest best thing i read last year and she was outstanding and of course i don't remember her name which is terrible but yeah. in my defense this is like day four of a book tour yeah and i've been on a plane every morning at 5 a.m so where can people find you online or uh, see some of your reading uh, you mentioned a couple of things at the top where can people find you online yeah i'm one of the owners of boing boing so you can find me at boingboing.net you can uh, buy and download my books at craphound.com and i'm dr o on twitter all right. Thank you so much, Corey, for the book. Thank you for your writing oh, and boing pleasure. boing and all the good stuff you do. So thank, thank you. you. This was a great interview. Oh, wow. That's cool. Thank you. Yeah. I'm your host, Sam Yunin. You can follow me on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram at MyPalSammy. Thank you for listening.